Be seated. Good morning. This morning's scripture reading will come from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. May we be blessed in the reading of God's word. Amen. Good morning. We, uh, we have a special opportunity this morning. Um, following service today, instead of having adult classes, we're going to have our uh, Koine for the month of March. And I am excited to share with you that Jared King is going to be here with us. He is here with us right now. It's not like some expectant thing in the future. Uh, Jared has arrived, and he's here to share with us about the work of the Missio Church in Seattle. Um, Missio is a church plant. Uh, it is uh, a passion for Jared uh, and something that we have the opportunity to be involved in and invested in. Um, and so I'm excited to hear from Jared about the work that he's doing. I want to encourage you to stick around after service. We'll have our Friendship 20, and you can get your coffee and a sweet snack at that time. But then there's also going to be coffee upstairs. So if you're a two-cup-a-day sort of person or a three-cup-a-day and you've already had one, uh, you know where you're going to get your next two cups of coffee. Um, I want to encourage you, stick around after service. Hear what it is that Jared has to share. This is something that we as a congregation have committed to supporting. Um, If you were with us for our uh, congregational meeting a few weeks ago, we talked about the mission works that we are currently supporting. um, And we want to grow in our support of missions throughout the world. Uh, We believe that God God is doing work everywhere. In fact, that's going to be a part of our sermon this morning. God is working everywhere And we want to be involved where he's involved, which means we want to be involved in as many places as we can. Um, So join us for Koine this afternoon or this this morning, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about a work that we can be involved in. Um, So all that said, we're going to continue in the Gospel of John today, and uh, I I chose what I think is maybe a, a very strange couple of stories to pair with one another because John chooses to pair a couple of strange stories with one another. You have this wonderful, exuberant wedding feast that is going so well that they run out of wine, right? Uh, People are celebrating so much that they reach the point where there's not enough wine left. And these wedding feasts could be multiple-day events. And Jesus steps in, and he makes more wine, and the celebration continues. It's The best wine, new wine, fresh wine. And then the very next story that we read about is Jesus seemingly in a fit of rage driving out 
the money changers and the sheep keepers and the oxen keepers from the temple. And we hold these two up next to one another and we're like, man, Jesus is kind of mercurial, right? Like we don't know what we're going to get from day to day. But I think both of these stories are telling us something true about Jesus that is intrinsically linked. They're not two different Jesuses. These are not two different images of Jesus. This is the complete picture of who Jesus is, what he cares about, the people that he loves and what he wants to see happen, what he's come to do. You know, there's this interesting thing at the end of chapter one where Jesus is having an encounter with a a brand new disciple who's mystified because he knows something about, Jesus knows something about his past. I saw you sitting under the fig tree, right? And he's like, whoa, Jesus, that blows my mind. I can't believe you saw me sitting under the fig tree. And we think, well, that's really strange. But then Jesus says this phrase. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And there's this drawback to an image that we find in the book of Genesis. There's actually two stories about towers in the book of Genesis, in fact. There's the story of the Tower of Babel, which is man building a tower up to the heavens in defiance of God, right? This, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to be a great and mighty nation. We're going to do what we want to do. We're not going to spread out. We're not going to follow the command of God. We're going to do our own thing. And then there's the story of what we call Jacob's Ladder. And if you're in my Wednesday night class, you know that when we read that word ladder, it's not It's not like rungs on a wooden ladder. It's not uh, hand over hand. It's talking about an ascending structure. And this this term doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture. It's only used the one time. It's a hapax legomenon, right? Uh, One of my favorite words in the whole world, hapax legomenon. It only appears once in the entire text. And what it means is this ascending tower And because the author has chosen a different word than he chose in the first place for the the Tower of Babel, we're supposed to understand this is a qualitatively different kind of tower. And we're told that there are angels ascending and descending and that it leads up into heaven. And what we're supposed to understand from this is that God is telling Jacob, look, I am at work in the world. My messengers are coming down and they're doing my work where you are. There's nothing that happens on the earth that doesn't arrive back in heaven. I know what's going on down there, and I am involved with what's going on down there. My hands and feet are present among you. It's an assurance to Jacob that he doesn't have to build a tower himself. God has the tower covered. That Jacob doesn't have to have a plan of his own. God has the plan covered. That Jacob doesn't even really have to lift a finger to see the things that are about to come about come about. God has that taken care of. And so when Jesus tells his disciples, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, Jesus is drawing the minds of the disciples back to that story and saying, I am God's process to enter into the world, and I am God's process to reclaim the world. Of course, If we've read chapter 1, we know he is God. God is present. God is going to be intimately involved in the details of humanity. He is both the process by which the work is done, and he is the one who will do the work. And as we read chapter 2, we begin to see this unfold. You see, uh, it's, it's 
two very different stories in tone, but one message. And in fact, it's, it's arguable that for the next couple of chapters, we're going to see this same message repeated over and over. And so we start with this idea, on the third day, all right? Now, if you're keeping a chronology of the Gospel of John so far, this is actually the seventh day in the book. It's three days after he's met uh, uh, this young man, Nathaniel, and it's the seventh day that is a wedding feast. It's this super exciting moment in Scripture uh, throughout the Gospel of John, we're going to have these little allusions to the idea of creation and new creation. And this whole first chapter leading up to the wedding day has told us there's been six days, and on the seventh day, there's a wedding. And it's not accidental. John doesn't do a whole lot of chronology in his book. Like, he'll give us, it was the Feast of Passover. It was the Feast of the Jews. During the Feast of the Jews, this would happen. But he never bothers to really lay out, it was this number of days. John is famously lacking in detail where he doesn't feel the detail is necessary and oversharing details where he wants you to be really clear on what his message is. He's telling us, the seventh day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, I want you to think about this. He's known Nathaniel for three days now. He's known Simon for four days. And he brings them along to a wedding with him. I don't know about you, but like, I sometimes feel uncomfortable inviting people that I've known for like a decade to a wedding with me. Uh, like, I feel good inviting my wife to a wedding with me. I know how she's going to behave, and I know how she's going to make me behave. Uh, I know that we're not going to create a bad scene or anything like that. But Jesus, three days into knowing Nathaniel, invites him to a wedding, and he invites the disciples to come along with him. Jesus is the invitee. The text implies that Jesus just brings the disciples with him. Now, you want a lot of people at a wedding feast because you want the whole town to be involved in this process of celebrating, Right? I wonder if maybe Jesus was partly responsible for there not being enough wine because his disciples were too numerous and they weren't planning for this number of guests. I'm not going to imply Jesus is at fault here, but maybe that's a little bit of what's going on. And so he feels responsible. Ah, maybe I should take care of the water, the wine. What we read is really interesting, though. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And as we go through the story, we see that the wine has run out and Jesus turns the water to wine, and when they bring it out, they, they taste it, right? And they get a little bit on their tongue, and the, the master of the feast calls the bridegroom. And he says to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. They're not going to notice the difference, right? But you have kept the good wine until now. We can get caught up in the kind of vessels Jesus uses, right? Like uh, you, you've probably heard a lot of these stories about like, ah, he used purification vessels. They're like basins for washing. And some people falsely say, well, that means that they were dirty in the water. If they knew where it came from, they wouldn't want to drink it. No, these were like the cleanest vessels that were in the house. This is water that's intended for purification. This is a good source of water. A lot of people get caught up in the number of vessels that are filled, or they, they focus on uh, Jesus' like, statement to his mother, it's not my time yet. And G Mary's insistence that, nah, just do what he tells you. Like, yeah, he, he, he may be objecting to it now, but just wait and see. 
we get caught up in those details, and I think we miss something pretty tremendous here. Jesus makes it better. The party is going well already, except for this possible, eventual calamity. We're out of wine. What are we going to do? And instead of just making it good enough, instead of kind of keeping the status quo, Jesus makes it better. He elevates the entire event. His presence alone is enough to make things extraordinary, to surprise the master of the feast. And so in a lot of ways, because the master of the feast has maybe failed at his job, I don't know, is he responsible for bringing the wine or not? The bridegroom is certainly the one that seems to have run out, but Jesus provides the best wine. And the party doesn't end. The celebration continues. And on the seventh day, everyone finds themselves at ease and rested. They find themselves celebrating a good thing that has just occurred. And of course, the rest of the New Testament is going to use this language of the bridegroom and the bride and the wedding feast and and celebrate this idea that Jesus is the bridegroom, right? But in addition to that, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus is the one who makes the wedding better. He's the one who makes this sacred and holy day a more elevated moment. If we read on, it says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. The funny thing is, he doesn't manifest his glory to the entire crowd. Like He doesn't stand up and say, that was me. I'm responsible for the good wine. The servants know. His disciples know. They're they're in on a secret. He manifests his glory to this small group of people. And his disciples believed in him. Then we have this second story. Sorry, we're having technical difficulties. There we go. All right, so the Jews said to him, that's, we went one too far. We went way too far. All right, so there we go. And making a whip of cords. So he goes into the temple. This is, he leaves a wedding, spends a few days at home, goes down to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, right? We're given the context here, one of the few times that John is like, hey, by the way, here's what's going on in the world around Jesus. And in the temple, he sees people changing out money, and they, they're selling cattle, and they're selling birds, and there's this big uproar about what's going on internally, but it's slow and methodical because Jesus is upset, right? It says, in making a whip of cords, we move right on to the next sentence, or the next part of the sentence, making a whip of cords, he drove out. There's a gap in there, guys. Making a whip of cords takes some time. It's not, a, not an instantaneous moment. Jesus sits and watches what's going on. And he fashions this whip, and then he addresses the situation he sees. He drove them all out of the temple 
with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, now this is interesting, I'm going to get to this in just a second. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now it's interesting because he's pretty quick to like drive out the sheep and the oxen, right? He's, they're whipping them out and uh, driving out the money changers. And it's pretty clear that he seems to be pretty non-discriminant in all of that. But it's the people who are keeping the pigeons, He's like, hey, you guys, get out of here. He's, he's a little bit more civil with them. And I think there's an interesting thought there that we're going to share in just a moment. If you don't know what the temple looked like, there's, there's multiple courts. There's an inner court that is where all the sacrifice happens. And, of course, within the inner court, there's the temple structure itself. And in the back of the temple structure itself, there's the Holy of Holies. And as you move out from there, people who are allowed to have close intimacy with God are essentially moved outward. So you have uh, the, the court of the Jews, the court of the women, and then the court of the Gentiles. Okay, So the Gentiles don't have as direct a relationship with God in the, this temple system. This is the way that it works. They can come and they can be near to what's happening, but they can't be involved in the process. And in this outer court, you have a concession made. You know, people are going to arrive in Jerusalem, and they're going to want to offer sacrifices. We gotta, we gotta sell the sheep and the goats somewhere. We gotta, we gotta have oxen for them to buy. We've gotta have pigeons and turtle doves for them to be able to offer, uh, you know, because maybe they're traveling from a long distance and it's really difficult to care for turtle doves on the road, right? And so they decide the Gentiles don't have interest in worshiping here. We're gonna go ahead and we're gonna use the Gentile court as a place to sell livestock, to take the uh, the the currency of Egypt and convert it to the currency of Rome. And people can buy and sell here. Who needs the Gentiles anyway? And of course, that means there's nowhere in the temple complex for those who are on the outside of the system to find themselves approaching God. The location matters. Where Jesus finds himself and what's going on matters. The temple is not supposed to be entirely exclusive to the Israelite people. In fact, the whole mission of the Israelite people was to broadly manifest the glory of God to the nations surrounding them so that they would come and long to be At the house of God, you go and you read the prophets and you see over and over again this promised time where the nations will come and they will be in the presence of God at the temple. And Jesus looks around and he says, this is not what God intended. This is not the plan. How are they supposed to come from the nations to worship my father if they can't even get to their own court. And so he clears out the temple courtyard. But the interesting thing is, again, these pigeons, what's the deal with the the guys selling the pigeons? Why doesn't he just like fling the cages out the door? Why is he not as as brutal and difficult with them? And, And I really struggled with this for a long time because I read the passage and I'm like, 
Jesus, you're kind of taking it easy on these guys. Now, I want to tell you, the, the thing that I came to over the course of the last several weeks, reading some commentaries on this, when Jesus is a young child, and he's come, and his parents bring him to dedicate him at the temple, you read the story, and you find that they don't offer a lamb. They don't offer an ox. They don't offer anything big. What they offer is two birds. And in the law, there was this concession that was made. If you couldn't afford to offer an ox, you had alternatives, all the way down to a sack of flour, essentially. The doves were for the poor. The doves were for the people who didn't really have the means to be flashy in the temple. And Jesus is a little more patient with these guys, and I wonder if maybe it's because when his parents came to dedicate him at the temple, they were the provision for him. The Gentiles can't get to the temple because their court's blocked. The poor have to have a way to offer sacrifice. I'm not going to drive these, these pigeon sellers away. I'm going to tell them to set up shop outside of the Gentile court. And Jesus moves from this clearing out of the temple, allowing the Gentiles in, preserving an avenue for the poor to come and worship God. And then he has this, this interesting little statement he makes. It says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Where, where do you get your authority? This is going to be a big question in the Gospel of John. Who authorized this? Give us a reason to believe you have the right to do it. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? He was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus prepares the physical temple for the Gentiles to arrive. He prepares it for the poor to be able to continue to worship God. He purifies it by removing the things that are impure. He says, this is not a place of commerce. This is not a place for you to change your money. This is not a place for you to, to distract from the real reason that the temple exists in the first place, which is to draw human beings into relationship with God to draw the nations into relationship with God. And he says, look, I'm doing this now, but I want you to know this temple is not the only way that God is going to work. Tear this temple down, and I will raise it in three days. And I'm drawn back to this image of the work of God between heaven and earth. Where God is not distant from the activities of humanity. 
Jesus goes to a wedding feast and he makes it better. On the seventh day, he observes something good and he elevates it. He participates in rest, leisure, celebration. He recognizes something good is happening. He gets involved. And where he sees that there is something wrong, evil, wickedness, maybe just benign apathy about the state of the nations, he sets things right. Where the poor might get lost in the commerce that's happening with the trading of all the big livestock, he protects their ability to approach God. We see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And what's good, Jesus elevates. And what's wrong, Jesus sets right. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. He came to make right what was wrong and to elevate the good. And I want to ask you this morning, are we doing the same thing? Because we are told that we are participants in the ministry of Christ, that we are participants in the ministry of reconciliation, that when we are a part of Christ, we behold a new creation, which means that we are not just beholding as as passive people, oh, wow, look what Jesus is doing. We say, I see it, and I want to be involved in it. Remember last week, we behold Jesus. We witness Jesus. And we stay where Jesus is. We do what Jesus is doing. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we we know that there are weddings out there to celebrate. That there are places where we can become the master of the feast, that we can help elevate the good that is being done, celebrate with those who have reason to celebrate. That as Christians, we're not called to be stoic, that we're not called to be distant from the activity of this world when it is righteous and good. But Father, you also call us to be people who will stand vehemently against those who would put up barriers to approaching you. Even at the cost of braiding a whip. Help us to carefully consider the ways in which people in this world have placed obstacles between you and one another. And Father, if we are those people, if we are the money changers who have taken up the court of the Gentiles and said, you know, we don't think you really want to be here. Help us to get out of the way. Father, we we pray a prayer that calls for restoration of our own hearts and calls for us to take on the image of your Son. We pray that we can be his hands and feet in this world. We pray, Father, that we can ascend and descend on the Son of Man so that we can carry the will of your kingdom into this world and that we can deliver those who are in this world to you through your Son. Help us to be righteous ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
If you have need of the church this morning, if we can pray for you, if we can walk alongside you, if, you, if you're wanting to be baptized, or you just need someone to listen, we want to let you know that all of that is something that we, we extend to you today. If you have something you want to celebrate, we want to celebrate with you. If you have something you want to mourn, we want to mourn alongside you. And if you just have something that needs to be made better, we want to help make it better. I'm going to be at the back of the auditorium. Our elders are here today. Uh, They'd be happy to pray with you. We have some ladies here that would be happy to sit with you and pray with you as well, if that's what you would prefer. But in any case, if you have a need of the church, if there are ways that we can bless you today, let us know. And we're going to stand and we're going to sing.